Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. A lot has changed, I think you would agree, in the last 2,000 years, right? It's a pretty safe assumption to say a lot's changed in the last 2,000 years. Let's look at a few things that have changed as we get started this morning. Really, just the quality and standard of living is exponentially greater than it was, you know, even 100 or 200 years ago, definitely 2,000 years ago. Here's a few stats to, to, so, to show the difference there. Uh, the literacy rate in the first century was estimated somewhere between 3 and 10% worldwide. Now, that's a pretty rough estimate. Again, there's not a lot of data they could have gathered back then, but that's the estimate. 3 to 10% literacy rate. Uh, now, the lowest uh, on record, the lowest literacy rate of any country in the world is 15%. Um, and then there's only a couple countries there. Most countries are at least 20% and above. Uh, there are even a handful of countries that post a 100% literacy rate in their countries. Unfortunately, we're not one of them. Uh, we're 86%. That's pretty good. 86, that's a solid B, you know, um, so that's good. But again, we're going from 3% to mid to high 80% worldwide in 2000. That's a big change. The life expectancy rate in the first century was about 35 years. Currently, worldwide, it's doubled to 70. Again, there are other countries that are higher than that, some that are lower, but the world average now is 70. So we've doubled our life expectancy really in the last... 200 years, but definitely since 2,000 years ago. Uh, Transportation has changed quite a bit in the last 2,000 years. Travel has changed quite a bit. I mean, Jesus himself didn't really leave much more than 30 miles away from his hometown in his whole lifetime. And he, like, you know, split time in half. So pretty important impact this guy had, clearly. But, you know, you wouldn't travel that far. You wouldn't, you know, travel very fast if you were going anywhere. Even as recent as 150 years ago. So in 1872, there was a science fiction novel called Around the World in 80 Days. A science fiction novel traveling the world in 80 days, 150 years ago. And now we can do that in a matter of a day day and a half, right? If you get the right connections and your flights are on time, don't bet on it. Uh, You can get around the world in a couple days. So it's easy to do that now, right? Um, And even even beyond that, Elon Musk, you know, has said he thinks in the next 40, 50 years, we can have a million people on Mars. I don't know if I share his optimism on that number or even if I'd want to be a part of that colony on Mars. Anybody want to go to live on Mars? No, I don't know how he's going to get a million people. Okay, Jana is going to sign me up, baby. Four-year trip there. If I come back, a four-year trip back, and then maybe I'll colonize Mars. So I'll, I'll get you Elon's number. We'll get you in contact with each other, okay? Uh, the way we disseminate information has clearly changed in the last couple thousand years. In the first century, it's scrolls carried by a scribe from one place to another. Uh, and even with a 3% literacy rate, nobody can read what's on the scroll anyway. So why do we even write anything down, right? Uh, And it wasn't until the 15th century that we have the printing press where you can just mass produce works. And now we have the internet where whether it's fake or not fake, we really can't tell. But we can disseminate information really quickly right now uh, with the internet, computers, email, all that kind of stuff. Even something like the light bulb is less than 150 years old. 
That's a, that's a pretty amazing. Here's one that even blew my mind. I, I had to double and triple check my sources here. Penicillin is less than 100 years old. Like, that's cr- seriously? Really? Okay, I guess so. So a lot has changed in the last couple thousand years, right? But there's a famous phrase that you might be familiar with, and it's simply this. The more things change, the more they stay the same. That's what we'll look at today as we are in week three of our series, Dear Church. Uh, We're looking at the letters of Paul to specific churches that are in the New Testament. Just the ones he wrote to churches we're going to cover in this series. And we're going to look here that things change a lot over the course of history, but human, human nature does not really change that much, if at all. So things change, but we don't. And so in this, in today, in week three of our series, we're going to look at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul's letters to the Corinthian churches. And he, what we see in this letter, the reason I brought this up at the beginning is things have changed a lot. When you look at Corinth in the first century, it looks a lot like modern-day America uh, or modern-day city in America, you could say. Large metropolitan um, city somewhere, maybe half a million or more people, which is a huge city back in that time. Uh, And the problems in their society are the same ones that we have today. I mean, just paganism everywhere, worshiping all kinds of things. Um, They had their kind of own sexual revolution they were going through in Corinth at the time. I mean, it was a wild place, but then you look at kind of, you watch the news, you're like, oh, we're still living in Corinth, but it's 2,000 years later. And the church, the churches in Corinth that Paul writes to, they were struggling to figure out how to navigate this culture. They, and the problem was, as we'll see today, a lot of the issues that were in the culture were seeping into the church. So you have to remember, at this point in time, Christianity is brand new. This whole concept, this whole idea is just getting started. So these people come together. They put their faith in Christ, but they don't really quite know what that looks like just yet. They're trying to figure out how to differentiate themselves and their new life of faith and what that means, but they're struggling. They're having a hard time. And so what what seems to happen here is Paul got a letter from some of the people in the church, some of the leaders in the church, saying, hey, we've got some big issues in our churches. We've got some big problems in, in Corinth. We can't figure anything out. We can't get our act together. There's all kinds of stuff going on that we'll look at a bit today. And so Paul writes letters back to them, basically saying, hey, I've heard that you guys are misbehaving, and I'm going to spank you with my quill and with my pen, right, with my pad of paper here. Uh, and so he, there are times where he gets really, he, so Paul started this church, you read in the book of Acts, he started it, so it means something to him. The, these are people that he knows on a personal level. These are people that he helped to bring to Christ, that he's helped to build their faith for a couple of years. And so when he hears, he's like, oh man, guys, come on, seriously, I thought we were past this. I thought we figured this stuff out. And so he writes these letters to them, and there's possibly two more that, ha- that he wrote that we just don't have, but we have these two, and we're going to look at this today. And so my hope is today, as we look at First and Second Corinthians together, that we'll see Paul's advice and instruction to the churches in Corinth, and that hopefully if we personally and corporately follow this advice or, and, and these instructions, we can be effective in our mission as followers of Jesus, and then corporately we can be effective in our mission as a church to help people find love, hope, and life in Christ. So we're going to read quite a bit of scripture. Again, we're covering two kind of lengthy letters today, and so I won't keep you here forever. Uh, the, the Chiefs game was yesterday, so we're fine. Again, I'm always thinking about that in my brain, but 
So we're going to read quite a bit, but uh, to kind of get an idea of where we're going to go today. So I want to start out in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at sort of the theme of what we're going to cover today. There's two main ideas that I think Paul covers in these two letters that we're going to look at. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, go down to verse 18 if you have your Bible or you have your, the app on your phone or whatever, or the Bible in the seat backs there, you can follow along. It's 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18, and we'll see the theme of Paul's instruction to the Corinthian churches. He says this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved, you know, it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. So we see here, especially in this last couple verses, the theme, I think, the two-part theme of Paul's argument in these letters, and that is the wisdom of the gospel and the power of the gospel. So we're going to frame that today with this idea of brains and brawn, the brains and brawn of the gospel, the power and the wisdom of of the gospel. So the idea here is that if we each want to be effective and faithful followers of Jesus, we need the brains and brawn of the gospel. And if we as a church want to be faithful and effective in our community, we need the brains and the brawn of the gospel. We need the wisdom and the power of the gospel. Even here in the opening chapter of his first letter, Paul sets up this tension between wisdom and foolishness. And the tension is the God's wisdom, the gospel, seems like foolishness. And the world's foolishness seems like wisdom. But he says, no, you got those reversed. That's backwards. God's wisdom, even God, he says even God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. Even God's weakness, which is a weird thing to consider because God's not weak. But he says, even on God's weakest day, he's stronger than the strongest human ever could imagine being. And so what we see here is that obviously we know the world does not accept God's way. But what we also see is that the world's way doesn't work. So that's what Paul's saying here is that people are blinded. He even uses that later on. People are blinded to the truth here. And so he makes this tension here, but with brains and brawn. We need the power and the wisdom of the gospel. So there's a couple things I'll mention about um, the, the wisdom of the gospel first, and then we'll get to the power, which is pretty simple uh, at the end. So let's look at the brains of the gospel. The first thing that Paul wants us to see here is uh, to see the wisdom in living life God's way. The first part of the wisdom of the gospel is living life God's way. And Paul's example here, he says, if you, if you want an example of what foolishness looks like, look at the wisdom of the world apart from Christ. If you want to see what a fool looks like, look at someone living apart from Christ. And then he basically is asking this question as we get into chapter 2 here of 1 Corinthians. He says, what does the world's wisdom get you? Where does that, if you just flesh that out, keep that line, train of thought going, where does the world's wisdom get you? And here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, no, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. 
his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But here's what the wisdom of the world gets you. The rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. So when you look at exactly what Jesus is, or Jesus, what Paul is talking about here in verse 8, he's talking about the Roman authorities that crucified Jesus. So look at Pilate, who had the final say, yay or nay. He thought it was the wise move to crucify Jesus. He thought it was politically expedient for him to get rid of this uprising by this Jewish rabbi to save his own neck. Because if this gets any worse, if there's any more fighting and grumbling among the Jews here, then I'm out of a job and out of a life. They're going to replace me with somebody else that can get these people under control. So he thought in his human wisdom, I got to kill this guy. The Jewish officials that brought Jesus before Pilate also thought it was wise to kill Jesus. They see him as a blasphemer. Some of them probably genuinely saw him as a blasphemer. Some of them knew better, I think. Some of them knew there's something here, but we don't like he's getting our attention. He's leading the people away from our teaching. We don't have as much influence because of this little guy from nowhere. And so they, it was wise for them, right, to crucify Jesus. So Paul's saying here the problem is they were operating out of human wisdom, not out of godly wisdom. And the reason he brings this up is because we're going we're gonna to really zoom through an overview of 1 Corinthians here for just a couple minutes and look at Paul's warning to the church is this. He says, you, the reason you guys are having so many issues in the church is because you're operating under human wisdom, not under God's wisdom. And he tells them, so let's look through, uh, we're going to zoom through a few problems that the church in Corinth was having here. So in, in 1 Corinthians 5, he accuses them of worldly pride, spiritual pride. You're, you're flaunting, you know, how holy you are, and you're, you know, comparing yourself to other people and all that sort of stuff. And so he's like, that's why you're having divisions and problems that we'll get to here in a minute. In chapter 6, he talks about, he says, all of the believers in the churches are just suing each other. Frivolous lawsuits over little things, that thing, like they hurt my feelings, I'm taking them to court, you know? Like literally, they're just going crazy with each other. They seem to hate each other. They don't know how to function together. And so Paul says, that's got to stop. And then in chapter 6 and then 7, he talks about the sexual promiscuity of the outside culture has gone into the church in Corinth. He's saying, we're just having people sleeping with everybody and everybody and their mother. Like, literally, he accuses a dude of sleeping with his stepmother, you know, in the church. And he's like, what are we doing here, guys? Like, what's the problem? So he's saying, the, out, the outward culture that you're trying to have this buffer in with your faith is creeping in. He says, this can't continue. You're using human wisdom in how you operate. In chapter 8, he talks about this issue of food sacrificed to idols, which doesn't mean a lot to us today. But back then, you would have this deity you would worship. And kind of like the Jews would, they would, you know, sacrifice their food to God in the temple. And then they would eat it together. Well, this is happening in pagan cultures, especially in Corinth. And so there's this debate on, well, some people feel like, okay, this food has been sacrificed to this idol. It's, I'm buying in the market should I not buy that? Should I? And so he, he basically is trying to make this uh, distinction here. It's all about kind of your heart. Like if you, if you sacrificed and worshiped that idol, to the, then do not eat that. Like just don't. Now, if it's been sacrificed and it just happens to be where your local market is, but you're worshiping Jesus, that's totally fine. But he also makes a distinction. He says at the end of uh, chapter eight, uh, he says, if eating meat would offend a lesser mature believer, I would be a vegetarian. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, please don't make me do that, you know? (laughs) 
And that's a big sacrifice, right? If eating meat offended somebody, he said, I would not eat meat. Like, that's commitment, okay? He's committed to Jesus here. But that's one of the issues that they were facing in this culture. And then in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the Lord's Supper. So they would do it a bit differently than we do now. They would do it much more like Jesus and his disciples did as a part of a larger gathering, a longer meal together. And he's getting on to them because he's saying, hey, some of you are getting there really early and eating all the food, and then the, the poor people that come in later, they're already starving, and they come in, you've eaten all the food. What are you guys doing? And so that's why at the end of chapter 11, he says, you have to examine yourself. Are you doing this for the right reason? Because they're basically, it's like a potluck, you know, every time they get together, but they're coming in early. They're not being... Uh, they're not being aware of those around them. They're being greedy. They're being stingy. And he's like, we can't. That's not what this is about. This is a sacred thing we're doing together to gather. And so they're having this issue too. And then one more thing. Uh, in, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he addresses the issue of spiritual abuse of spiritual gifts. And that's why he spends a lot of time here explaining what spiritual gifts are and how they're to be used in the church because they're being misused in this church. So he's not saying don't use spiritual gifts. He's saying don't misuse them. And what you notice is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I think what's interesting is right in the middle of this section on spiritual gifts is a chapter on love. It's very fascinating. So what he's getting at here, everything that we do as a body has to be done in love because of love. And that's the key to what Paul is saying here. So what he's really getting at as he kind of really gets onto them most of this first uh, letter is he's saying, you guys are getting all this wrong because you're trying to operate out of the world's wisdom. You're thinking like someone apart from Christ when you are in Christ. So your thinking should be different. Your mindset should be different. Your uh, approach to life should be different. Um, and so we know that everything we do should be through the lens of the wisdom of the gospel. The wisdom of the gospel. And here's an amazing thing. We're going to stay in chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians here. I want you to see this amazing aspect of what the wisdom of the gospel really is. Another uh, phrase that Paul uses here to illustrate how amazing, because so far you may not be impressed, like, okay, wisdom of the gospel, that's great. Here, this, will, this will hopefully get you hooked if you're not already. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, skip down to verse 13, and Paul explains the wisdom of the gospel, I believe, in this way. He says, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. Here's the key, verse 16. He's quoting here Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? Paul says this, but we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. That's a pretty heavy sounding statement there. We have the mind of Christ. So what in the world does that mean? What is Paul getting at here? It seems like a pretty lofty statement. It seems like a really big claim. We have the mind of Christ. Really, all he's saying here is simply as an outgrowth of your faith, you grow in your faith. So that's what the mind of Christ is. It's simply the ability to know God more in reality. That's what the mind of Christ is. Uh, Peter, in one of his letters, talks about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. Part of the wisdom of the gospel is to grow and mature spiritually. Also, the, um, the mind of Christ is this idea that we know what God wants just a little bit more than we did before. 
as we grow in this, we know what God wants a little bit more. So the things that bother God begin to bother me a little bit more. The, the things that break God's heart begin to break my heart a little bit more because I have the mind of Christ now. The things that God values, I begin to value a little bit more because I'm operating through the wisdom of the gospel in the mind of Christ. And over time, we follow him more and more closely. In the next chapter, uh, first, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul says that the Spirit changes us from glory to glory. We're advancing. We're growing. And that, that's good. It, there's wisdom in growth as well. That's one of Paul's frustrations in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, at the beginning of that chapter, he says, you know, when I first came to you, I gave you milk and not solid food because you weren't ready for it. But he's like, I expected that then. But he says, you're still not ready. It's been months or years since he's departed. They've had great training. They, they should know what they're doing. But he says, you're still not maturing. And that's where all these problems come into play. Spiritual growth is not a waste of time. Uh, there's purpose to it. It's also not arrogance. So when we say we have the mind of Christ, it's not like say, I have the mind of Christ. Look at me. I know the thoughts of God. You know, it's, that's, not what, that's not why Paul says that. He's saying, I need this wisdom. I need the mind of Christ in order to see things the way he sees them as best I can and to act in the way that he's trying to propel me to act as best I can. And then later down in, in chapter 9, I know we're going through a lot, but in chapter 9, he gives an analogy of what this is to help us to understand it maybe a little bit more. So skip down to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's read a couple verses here uh, near the end of that chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul gives us this analogy of maturing in the mind of Christ. He says, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? And he says, so run to win. Here's the analogy. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So when we, are, when we receive the gift of salvation, we receive this mind of Christ, right? It's part, it's one of the, we didn't talk about it as a gift last week in Romans, but it's another gift of salvation is the mind of Christ. But it's a gift that we then must cultivate and develop. We must learn to grow and mature that gift of the mind of Christ. And that requires, as Paul says here, it requires discipline and self-control. And he uses the example of an athlete. They have to use discipline and self-control to be in tip-top shape, to be the best at their craft. There's an example of this a few weeks ago. You may have heard this. The Arizona Cardinals, they gave their quarterback a big, fat contract. Five years, $230 million. On top of that, he got $29 million as a signing bonus. Just for signing his name, he got $29 million. Cha-ching! And of that $230 million, $160 is completely guaranteed. So this, this dude is obviously good. He's obviously valuable to this franchise. But the thing that made the headlines with his contract was not the numbers. It was a little clause snuck right in there in the fine print. And the clause was, if you want to get paid, you have to study film at least four hours a week on your own time. So that came out, and it was like, whoa, that's never been in a contract before because these guys, they live in the film room, don't they? How do they get so good if they don't watch the opponent on film? How do they get better if they don't watch themselves on film? Apparently, this $230 million quarterback wasn't getting better because he wasn't watching film. And if you look at, at not to get, if you're not a sports person, I'll be back in 30 seconds. Just hang with me, okay? <laughs> if you look at the record of this team, the last two seasons, they start out so fast, and they end terribly. 
And it's probably because the quarterback is not watching film, right? But what does that take? Discipline, self-control. I've got to get off the video games. That was his issue. He's a big gamer. I've got to get off the video games. For, again, he's a professional. This is his job. They're asking for four hours a week, right? That's not a ton. He gets to play football for a living. Come on, you can do it, right? You can watch film for four hours a week, bud. So and if he wants to get better, he's going to have to do that. Paul's saying the same thing. with If we want to improve in our mind of Christ, if we want to see things more clearly the way that God sees them, if we want to live life the way that God wants us to live, we have to be disciplined. We have to have self-control. It's the same idea. And so the mind of Christ must be cultivated. He says, run to win. Run with purpose. Don't just beat the air. Have discipline. Have training. And that's this, it's a big fancy word, but it's this idea of sanctification. That's all that is, is allowing the Holy Spirit to grow us in our faith, to point out weaknesses in our life that we need to improve upon, to show us opportunities how we can grow and develop as a follower of Jesus. This is the wisdom of the gospel. It's the brains of the gospel. That's the individual part. Let's look quickly, though, at a corporate part for how the church then can operate in the wisdom or in the brains of the gospel. And it's simply this idea here, um, the, the brains of the gospel corporately is living in harmony with each other. The wisdom of the gospel for a church is that we live in harmony with one another. Go back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He reveals one of the main problems in the Corinthian church here that he addresses at the, at the start. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, start at verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized into the name of Paul? Of course not. So division and disunity was a major issue in the Corinthian church. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Cultural reasons, socioeconomic reasons, uh, some Jew, some Gentile coming in together trying to figure it out. There's a lot of reasons. So he's saying, I know it's messy. I know it's complicated, but we got to be unified. we got to figure out how to solve these differences and problems. And I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, anybody else a Kentuckian in here besides me? Didn't think so. So the state motto of Kentucky that happens to be on the flag uh, is, the, is the famous phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. So long before Daniel Boone or whoever put that on the flag, uh, Paul knew this is a good idea. This is, unity is essential for the church. And so we can't allow divisions, I'm not saying we had this issue here, but it's a good idea just to address it while it's not an issue, okay, um, to encourage us in that, that we can't allow people to divide us as a church, whether it's who's doing what or who's where, or they sat in my seat, right, we can't, we can't do that, right? Um, we have to stay unified and focused on Jesus and his mission. We can't allow preferences to divide us as a church. We have to stay united and focused on Jesus and his mission. We can't allow programs to divide us as a church. We have to stay focused and unified on Jesus and his mission. We can't allow politics to divide us. Ooh, right? Uh, we have to stay focused on Jesus and his mission. That's the whole point. Uh, the author uh, and leadership guru, Stephen Covey, he wrote this years ago. He said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay? 
I mean, how much more muddled can you make that clear? It's like, you know, you could have simplified that, but I get what you're doing. The, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so Paul's saying that here. Jesus is the main thing. We can unify around that. We can focus on that and be effective as a church. The gospel is the main thing. So we can focus on that and unify around that and be effective as a church. Let me just say briefly, though, unity does not equal uniformity. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Unity does not mean uniformity. So we're not designed by God to be robots, to all be the same, to all do the same and live the same, right? That's not, we're not called to do that. And that's why in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the metaphor of a body to explain this idea. You have unique differences among you. Celebrate that, right? That's by design. That's good. So he uses the idea of a body. We can't be just a bunch of arms. What kind of body is that? It's like a wheel that just, you know, rolls on. It's not going to be effective. If your body is just a bunch of eyes, you can see, but you can't say anything. You can't hear anything, so that's not effective. So he's saying the differences are there. Right now, for them, it's causing division. He's saying, hey, if we can learn to harness that and celebrate these differences among us, we can be really powerful. We can be really effective in, our, in where we live and be a beautiful thing as we leverage that thing that right now for them was dividing them. But that's the wisdom, uh, the wisdom of the gospel. Um, I'm going to move on to the second thing. I had a little bit more I was going to say about that, but I'll skip it. Maybe you can just take, your, just take the page of my notes and I'll just fill you in later. But I'm, I'm going I'm to skip to the second part. Um, here. So, and this part's pretty simple, okay? The first part, there was a lot there. We went through a ton. The second part's easy. Basically, point number two is do point number one, literally is, is what this is. So, what is the brawn of the gospel? The brawn of the gospel, Paul would say this, is simply living out the wisdom of the gospel, okay? The power, so it's, it's wisdom and power. The power of the gospel, Paul would say, is living out the wisdom of the gospel, so it's really one point I split into two here, I guess. The, the power of the gospel is living out the wisdom of the gospel. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 here for a few minutes. And I'm going to read, it's like 11 verses, and so I'm going to kind of start and stop to make some application and observations along the way as we go uh, to work through this idea of the brawn of the gospel, the power of the gospel, is simply living out the wisdom of the gospel. Okay? So we see this in 2 Corinthians 5, start at verse number 11. 2 Corinthians 5.11. Paul says, Because we understand our, feel, our fearful responsibility to the Lord, so that's the wisdom of the gospel, our responsibility, we work hard to persuade others. That's the power of the gospel. Then he says, God knows we are sincere. It's the wisdom of the gospel. And Paul says, I hope you know this too. That's the power of the gospel. So the personal application of the wisdom of the gospel unleashes the power of the gospel. He, he continues. He says, are we commending ourselves to you again? He says, we're not just bragging about ourselves, about how holy we are, right? He says, no, we're giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. You see that distinction there? He says, there are going to be some people, within your, some leaders within this church or other churches around who are going to look at, oh, look at the numbers we had on Sunday. Look at the success in ministry we have, and their lives are like a wreck. They're like, how is God still blessing anything you're doing? Because you're like a mess, right? He's saying, I would rather you have sincere motives than crazy results in your, in your life, in your ministry, at your church. That's what he's getting at. You can answer those who brag about a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. And he skips down. He says, if it seems we are crazy, 
You're probably right. No, he doesn't say that. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Here's the key component of the power of the gospel. He says, either way, Christ's love controls us. Other versions say compels us, motivates us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we, we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This is, let me stop for a second. This is the importance of the wisdom of faith being personally applied. Like, I can't focus on primarily how everybody else is doing. Well, man, they're not, they're not, they really messed up there. I got to focus on me, right? I can't be like checking the box. How are they doing? And we want to be there for each other. We want to help others to grow. We want to do this in community, but it can't be like this domineering, judgmental, you need to mature like me kind of thing, right? Paul's saying, let's not, let's not do that. Don't judge others from a human point of view, because sometimes we miss things. Sometimes we make assumptions about people, what they're going through, and we're wrong. Sometimes we look at somebody's life and don't know a lot of the backstory of why they're where they are. We just, man, they're, what, what's wrong with them? We don't know the struggle that they deal with on a regular basis. We don't know the lack of support they have in their life and their spiritual journey. We don't know what they're, what's going on inside their head. And we sometimes will assume things that aren't true. We say, we can't do that. We thought we knew who Jesus was as a human, and then we realized, oh, wait, he's God. We had that one wrong, didn't we? So Paul's saying, don't do that. But he says this. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's amazing. Then he says, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Here's the key here. Here's the power of the gospel. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So the power of the gospel is that the wisdom of the gospel changes everything about us for the better. And the power of the gospel is that as the wisdom of the gospel is lived out, it makes an impact on those that need that in their lives. He uses two words here that I think are interesting. He says, we are Christ ambassadors. So whether you know this or not, you are an official representative of the king of the universe, if you're a follower of Jesus. You are an official representative of the kingdom of God here. You are an ambassador. There's a famous quote attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. It's debated, but the quote is like this. He said, supposedly, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. So my heart is that we would represent Christ well. That if Gandhi were to look at my life, he would say, that's the real deal. Not that I'm so amazing or great or perfect, but he would say, there's a genuineness to their walk. Like they back up what they say with what they do. Like they, they don't just read about this, but they live it out. So may we represent Christ well as his ambassadors, living life his way, living in harmony with one another. This attracts people to the gospel. This genuine life of faith works. And then he uses this other word. We are, 
other versions say we are Christ's ministers. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know you're a minister as well? Yeah, go get your collar, you know, and everything. Uh, I don't even have one of those, but we're ministers. He said we have the ministry of reconciliation. And the question is, how are we to minister effectively? We can try to yell and scream with the culture. We can try to bang our fists and, you know, all that. We can try that. We can try to judge and shame and condemn. But, again, the key there is he says Christ's love compels us. His compassion is what moves us to reach people with the power of the gospel. Paul says we plead with people, come back to Christ. He says we urge people, there's a better way than what you're living. There is actually hope for you. You may not feel like it. It may not seem like it. You may feel lost and alone, but I'm urging you. I'm pleading with you. There is more. There is more for you. That's what this power of the gospel is. One more verse as we, as we close it up today, and, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's, so it's not just words that we preach as his ambassadors and ministers, but it's, we, we know it's also our actions, right? But in case we didn't know or aren't convinced, Paul makes it very clear here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul says this, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. So Paul says, you are the proof of our ministry. You are the fruit of our ministry. And then in verse 3, he says, clearly, you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. So the power of the gospel is that people are reading your life. The power of the gospel is that hopefully, as people read your life, they seek what you have. Right? They're seeing something there. How can you remain so calm in this crazy time? It's the power of the gospel that you're living out. It's affecting them. How can you not respond in that way when everybody else I know would just fly off the handle at that person in that situation? It's the, it's the peace of God that I have through the power of the gospel. It, it makes a difference. We're a living letter. People are reading our life as we point people to Jesus. So again, the wisdom of God, as we live it out, unleashes the power of the gospel. It's a pretty simple idea, I think, right? And, but that's why, again, going back to where we started, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, you know, the Jewish people, they demand signs. The Greeks, they look for wisdom and human wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And the point of that is that covers both of those people groups he just covered. Jesus is the sign the Jews were looking for, and he is the wisdom that the non-Jews are looking for. He covers all the bases. He checks every box because it's the wisdom and the power of God. So my prayer today is that our lives would be full of that, full of the power and the wisdom of God that changes our lives and can change the lives of those around us too. Let's pray. God, my prayer today is that we would see the wisdom of the gospel and then live out the wisdom of the gospel to acknowledge that your way is best. Your ways are higher your thoughts are greater, even and especially on days that I don't feel like it. Help me to see the wisdom of the gospel. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide each of us as we follow after you. 
Allow us to be receptive to what your Holy Spirit is doing in our lives as we grow in this mind of Christ, in the wisdom of the gospel. And help us as a combined community of faith to live in harmony with one another, which is the wisdom of the gospel. That we wouldn't allow small, trivial, insignificant things to divide us, but that as people are looking at the unity that we share, we're all different, we have different backgrounds, we're different ages, we're different stages in life, and yet we come together for a common cause, that's unique. The wisdom of the gospel shows that, and then that reveals the power of the gospel. As we just try as best we can, as frail as we are, to live out the wisdom of the gospel every day, people will notice. People will see the difference. People will want what we've got. They will ask. They will question. They will be like, okay, what's the deal? What's the secret? And the secret is the wisdom of the gospel. The secret is Jesus Christ, and that is the power of the gospel. As we just live this thing out, simple idea, yet it's revolutionary. It's a simple idea. It's not easy to do, but as we do it through your power and your strength, we unleash the power of the gospel that changes people's lives. So help us to receive and live in the wisdom of the gospel to see its power unleashed in our neighbors, family, friends, co-workers, everyone that we come in contact with, that they would be changed by the power of the gospel. So I pray for that wisdom and power today to follow us as we leave this place today, that you would give us a great week this week and bring us back next time ready for more of you in Jesus' name. Amen.